from the book of Job. In the land of Uz, there lived a man who was named Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to sit to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you put a hedge around him and a household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The word of the Lord. Kids Church with Kelly this morning. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As we've been walking through the book of Job, it's, it's been important to keep in mind that Job falls in this wisdom literature and that in finding it here, we are seeking wisdom. Wisdom that comes through this relationship to the Lord. This is the um, revealed name for the Lord given to uh, Moses at Mount Sin- or, uh, out in the wilderness first and then to the people at Mount Sinai. This is the particular name of God that fear of this one leads to the beginning of wisdom um, and then how we find ourselves in that. Um, this morning, we've, we finished the book of Job. So I went back to 1-1 because we're going to do it all over again. No. <laughs> uh, uh, the fall kickoff or the fall start of the next sermon series starts next week. Um, we'll be going through the Psalms. Now, it's 12 weeks all the way until Advent. Um, and so we'll be going through um, a selection of the Psalms. And because I um, don't like picking the Psalms myself, there's a book by Eugene Peterson originally called Earth and Altar, um, published back in the early 80s, and then um, uh, republished under a terrible title, Called to Community. Earth and Altar was so much better. Um, called to Community, Earth and Altar. I used his list, which matched exactly the list of psalms we have to go through from then until Advent. So I was like, now I don't have to pick the psalms. So we'll be using those psalms as we walk that journey. Um, and I'll uh, be doing my own research. The point isn't to go through that book. It's just sort of to for that to be the guidance on how I got to these psalms, because if I pick them myself, I feel like 
It's a lot of responsibility, so I tossed lots, which in the Bible is not always wrong. That's how we get the 12th disciple after um, Judas kills himself, and also how uh, um, Jonah is cast out of the boat um, on the way as he's fleeing Nineveh. So casting lots does have some responsibility, so I cast them out to what I had read, and that's what I came up with. Um, but today, um, I wanted to go back to Job and sort of resituate ourselves. And what happened as I was preparing for this week is I wrote two different sermons. Um, and I told Shelly uh, 15 minutes, well, 30 minutes ago now, that I wrote two different sermons, and I don't know which one to preach. And she said, time to get on that. Um, and I said, are you sure? Um, and I was still even going back and forth um, yeah, no, you don't want to preach them both. Um, that's certainly not the case. Um, one has this um, way in sort of reviewing this, this sort of thing in which we, we call uh, through the lens of the book of Job. And so one of the things that we sort of use at Defiance Church is first our mission is to be a witness to the reign of God, reconciling all things to himself. So the first thing that sort of sets up our church is that we aim to be a witness not the kingdom of God, not it in its particularity, but a witness to the God um, the work of God. Um, we point to it. Um, we um, sort of uh, try to be a mirror to it, try to be transparent to it. We are those who can describe what God has done as witnesses do at court trials. We can say the things in which God has done, but um, we point to what God is doing and has done, and it displaces um, us carrying the whole story ourselves, that we find ourselves in a larger story. The second, which I'll, I'll stick with um, as we walk through the second sermon, not the first sermon, um, uh, which doesn't matter to you, <laughs> you're getting the one that I give, um, is uh, faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues. Um, these are sort of the ways in, in which many churches, I mean, this is not unique to us, but we ground ourselves in sort of these three virtues, and they're named in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, we just read that a while ago, that we see in part, and someday we shall see face to face similar to Job's confession that he had heard about God, but after his speeches, he has now seen him. And in that sort of passage is, is these faith, hope, and love remain. All our works, all our prophecies, all our action, all of our knowledge dissolve at some point. And what remains is faith, hope, and love. And as anybody who's ever been to a wedding knows, and the greatest of these is Love. Now, I've said this joke before, but I still find it funny myself. Stanley Harawas says greatly of this, Christians are required to love each other even if they're married. Um, uh, I still get a kick out of that one. Anyways, um, but as we sort of look at them within our church, faith sort of names our posture towards our past, to the good works that God has done. We are a people who are saved. And most of us come to saving knowledge through some event or some sort of way in which we hear the good news of what God has done. Um, this would be similar to Israel's idea of being a people who was saved. They were raised up out of Egypt as God had heard their cries. So too we are a people raised up out of death and into new life because of what God has done. And so faith sort of names the ways in which we can sort of understand our past. It's a posture if we take these three in different ways that sort of says, we know that there is goodness. And yet, and this is, I think, ties, and um, the question in the book of Job is, does God fear God for nothing? Does Job have faith for nothing? Um, 
is the point of our faith as we look back at our past only for good things? Or is it for something else? Is it for relationship or freedom of God, which will tie in to where we're going with the second sermon? <laughs> the, 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 the next thing is hope. Um, and this, I think, is also a, a, an abounding theme in Job, is that he has this hope throughout it that, that somehow things will get sorted out with God. There might be um, uh, a redeemer. There might be um, somebody else who comes and sets these things right. One of the deep abiding things about Job's speeches is he refused to abandon himself entirely to despair for the most part. He sort of comes back and back again to this idea of like, I am bound to this God, but there is some future in which things will be reversed or, or reasserted or I will be at least heard. And he doesn't doubt the faith in the first part. This is what is so vital to Job, is that he is one who sticks with his faith, um, uh, that he will be one who says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise be the Lord. Is that he is one who stuck with that, but he also has hope that what he is in is not the full story. Now this for us means that in our lives we have hope and because what we are stuck in is not the full story. If faith names goodness, hope names in many ways that goodness doesn't fully reign yet. Um, There is still suffering. There is still pain. There are still broken relationships. There is still lostness. There is still um, pain in our lives and in creation. In the book of Romans, it says that the creation is frustrated and groans under these agonies. And it's in that same part that um, Paul's analogy for hope is that it can't be something we have already. Now, Walter Brueggemann talks about American hope as our main idea of hope is just more of the present because our lives go pretty well. The biggest thing we can imagine is just this, but a little bit better. But he says the biblical notion of hope is much more extravagant than that. It changes things. It's, It's radical in that way. It brings us to a new place. Hope then also names that there is more time. So much of what we do in our lives is governed by this notion that I need to say this now, I need to do this now, I need to make sure everything is perfect today. Um, And yet hope names that we have another time, another place, another interruption that's coming, and that will be good news for us. It proclaims the life of the world to come. Love, lest governed in Job. I've been looking for it. uh, it seems in his uh, sacrifices for his children, his prayers for his friends, that Job has this notion that in the present, and this is the one that names our present stance, is that we live in this relationship between love of God and love of neighbor, or that we live in this nation of um, training our loves to be in the present as God would have them be in the fullness of time. There's two different ways you could look at that. But that, that love is then as we see the past and what God has done for us and we wait that future day, which we cannot bring about because we are witnesses to it, we live lives of love, love characterized by Jesus too. Um, young people won't get this reference. BlackBerry used to have an ad campaign that their, their reference was love, as if somehow your cell phone was an object of love and love. And so love is obviously a very commercialized term in, uh, in our world. And so it is for Christians to also see love as crucified love, as suffering love, 
And if it's love that can be suffered, it can be strong in that way. It's not passive in other ways. And maybe that's the connection to Job in that, is that we have this, this love that can be suffered. Um, so we have, the, the name I use for this is often one, three, and then five. We have five other things, word, confession, table, order, and tradition. Um, related to the book of Job, word is where we found this story. Word is what illuminates us and our path. Word is that source that we go to for light. One of my favorite examples of word in the Bible is the word is a lamp unto our feet which is a metaphor that means a lot. It means that it's the way in which you can walk the path in which you are walking in life. Um, uh, second is that word is not just the um, physical Bible as we think of it, but word for the Christians is that which became incarnate in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and takes up residency in the world. We have a dynamic relationship to the word, not a static relationship to the word in many ways. Um, confession is predominantly what Job does throughout the book, is he confesses and he protests in ways. He confesses that the world is not right, and I think that there's a place for Christians to stand as often as we can in that place to say that something is broken here. Um, confession, uh, when we went through this originally, we went to Psalm 51, one of my favorite psalms, which is about the brokenness that we can sow in our own lives. But what he comes back to, the psalmist um, David, uh, traditionally in that psalm, is that if he can be redeemed, he will speak and he will sing and that he will go and restore other people. That the point of his confession is not just, God, I'm throwing out my sin, can you please forgive me? But also this point of, of rest, restoration. Um, I will go and then teach. I will sing. My voice will be amplified again to you. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice table deep theme in our church obviously we center our worship and our life on the table it is the table uh in which we await that future feast um which the bible ends with that great festival um in which every tear shall be wiped away and everyone be comforted um that that is where we are aimed and centered towards in the book of job last week we talked about how at the resolutions of things people are invited to his table again um, they come to the table and they um, offer him uh, gifts. Um, and this is where he's a witness to Jesus in a lot of ways. He is like Jesus in that he offers intercessions for people. He redeems them in that way. And then he um, uh, centers a table and that the table, as we bring gifts, um, traditionally, liturgically, the offering is placed near um, in the service near communion and that you bring your gifts to this moment. And we... We um, sort of reconnect here. And then two that, that I didn't think um, that are challenged, I think, correctly in the book of Job, order and tradition. Um, the first one is that you could argue that Job's friends have a very fine idea of both order and tradition. Um, uh, the first, let's do tradition, is um, Eugene Peterson, he's coming up again, I guess, has this wonderful way of thinking about tradition as he says that tradition is great because it is the bark of the tree that protects something living on the inside. Yaroslav Pelikan talks about traditionalism, which is the, um, the dead faith of the living, and tradition, which is the living faith of the dead. Um, G.K. Chesterton will talk about um, tradition as the great democracy of the dead as well. 
that as we were pushing towards equality in the early 1900s, Chesterton said, perhaps as we push towards voting and expanding voting to more and more disenfranchised people, we should give it that right to the most disenfranchised, those who are dead, um, so that they too may have a vote in how we understand our world. What Job's friends do is they make God stagnant in that way. They make order and tradition stagnant. They make them um, uh, so ordered that God is bound by them. This is the chief disagreement between Job and his friends in many ways is that they won't enter into to Job's story. They won't enter into Job's conundrums and promise. And, and so I think it's a right balance on tradition for the church to see that do we practice tradition um, in the sense of the dead bark of the tree or the dead faith that came before us? Or do we practice it in living in dynamic ways to inform our present and to guide us, but not to govern and solely limit us? And again, um, God, God doesn't entirely repudiate uh, them for their traditional stance. Um, they are proven wrong in the end, but, but Job sort of lives in that realm too, and he's proven right. So it's not clear um, which one is correct, along with that... Um, uh, it's not clear which one is correct, along with the fact that Job is part of a collection of a whole bunch of other books. So you can't just take one and make it the whole thing. Um, for communion, connection to table, for what I've received, I have passed on to you is how Paul introduces that, which is tradition. For what we receive, we pass on. And we pass on in alive ways, not in prescriptive ways. I think that's part of what Job raises on challenge. On order, similar challenge, although I think... Um, Going to Chesterton, he has this idea in which that while he considered Christianity, um, he found that it established a rule and an order, but that rule and order was for good things to run wild. It wasn't established to sort of shut everything down, but to create a place for good things to run wild. And so too, Job's friends, I think, suffer from an imagination in which um, Order is there in which everything can be placed and stagnated. Um, and so uh, God becomes a prisoner in some sense to that type of order. There is no alive order in it. Now, um, the second sermon, which is different, but, but one of the things that Bart talks about when he becomes a prisoner to that thing is that order, um, God becomes the architect of the world, but not the redeemer or the sustainer or the relational one. God becomes the designer, but not one whom we can plan to meet, not one we can plan to pray through. It almost becomes this sort of theistic interpretation of the world if you're stuck with Job's friend's notion of order, which is that, that God has said it this way and we have nothing we can do about it rather than this live and free God. Um, and so those are, are what I intended to go through, which I did anyways, um, although I had a lot more things to go with it. Um, but one of the things I wanted to end with, and this came from a question from Danielle and a question from Kim on the same Sunday about um, both disenchantment and enchantment, um, and then how do we become the people who leave behind the path of trust and ashes? Now, this is another quote I use often, off, often in, with number one, witness. To be a witness does not consist engaging in propaganda nor even stirring people up, but in being a living mystery, it means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. Or to say, the point of being a witness is to fear God for nothing. In the language of the book of Job. 
And what Richard Rohr, I believe I referenced this last week, says about the ways in which we can become witnesses in this way, that we can come people who leave behind um, dust and ashes, who are um, expanded in our hearts and minds and brought up out of our depths. He says the best school for that is prayer and suffering, um, which we don't pray for suffering very often. <laughs> and yet Job's rescue, and in a different way, in Psalm 22, which um, uh, Park read for us, um, instances of suffering tend to be where God comes near. Um, uh, it's how Job and God's relationship is somewhat magnified in this. And then how is it then we participate in prayer, too? Um, there's, there's this way in which I love to say, I would love if there was a shortcut to being this kind of person. Like, well, it's simply wake up at 7 every day, make your bed, optimize your life in these ways, find this instruction, um, read, read the great novels, this, that, and the other, and then you, too, will be a witness, um, a faithful witness to what God has done. You will fear God for not. But that's not the way it goes. It comes through a living relationship. And I think that goes back to the problem with order and tradition and the way that Job's friends use those more um, as a hatchet, I think, to bludgeon Job rather than as a, uh, something to be invited into. Um, and so how is it we find ourselves drawn into this to become, in this way, um, witnesses to what God has done? So... Carla, we're going to get both, and I'm going to do it fast. Um, uh, I had planned on this Sunday in using Karl Barth's interpretation of Job in the uh, 28th of 31 volumes. You can borrow them if you like. They're quite heavy, though. You need both hands to... Um, and the way in which he interprets Job more theologically, and we'll do that... Um, sort of swiftly here. But one of the ways in which I was sitting with him, and I think this names the way in which Job has faith in, in these vows, which will be familiar to many of us, in the name of God, I take you name, uh, I, I name, take you name to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. Um, we say this in wedding ceremonies. We say it in front of other people because it's a promise that we couldn't make on our own. We would need to say it in front of others to be reminded of it and to be bound to it and to move into that space with our lives. Um, uh, the idea that this is something you could do privately kind of defeats this style of promise. Um, similar to baptism in that way is that there's this public confession in which we are invited into something in a people, and this, that, and the other, that, that is beyond that. Um, and this, this one, um, to have and to hold from this day forward, um, I can't remember where I first became acquainted with this, but it's to say these type of things to one person is the murder of all other people. Um, to say that I am bound to this one in this way is to say that there is no one else I will be bound to along that path. What I want to say as I was reading um, Bart's interpretation is this is how clearly he understands Job's relationship to God. Job, while he loses everything because of God in many ways and finds himself stranded, he does not stop fighting 
for his fidelity to this one. Job fights continually for his fidelity to this one with his friends. Over and over again, he's bringing back to, that this is the one whom has stricken me, but I need faithfulness from it. It would be easier for Job, and, which doesn't happen, is to bring a certificate of divorce, which would be the ancient way to this God. To say, look, Things were great. You protected me. I liked the hedge. I liked the camels. That deal is no longer here. It would be easier if we went our separate ways. And comical as that may be, although nobody laughed, the ancient Near East, um, there were many other gods in which Job could go to. Um, There were many other places he could find himself in relationship to God. And yet he um, is stuck Um, or bound, or is, in the words of God, upright and blameless and shuns evil and fears God. He is the one whom God has pronounced in that way, unable to do so. He is bound in fidelity to that God, and he can go to no other God in the course of that. Um, And that is, I think, what, what I was, when I read this four times this week, this short section in that book on Job. But it became clearer and clearer to me that that Bart really sees how this relationship between God and Job is a really bounded one in which neither will forsake the other one. And what's interesting, um, he does it in four parts, and I'll just review them quickly. Um, He begins by acknowledging that Job is sort of this unique outsider among uh, Jews. It's common in the Old Testament you have these outsiders, but Job is sort of this one whom has the attention of God. Um, he is one who um, the Lord partners with in many ways. And he partners with him because Job is able to say um, uh, something like the, uh, this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That, that God and Job form this partnership because God, Job is one who fears God for, for now. And one of the things that he points out from the beginning of this um, is that God has already vindicated Job in heaven. He has already spoken that this is my servant Job. Now, what I think is important for the church in that, which is hard for us to realize and to accept, is that God has already spoken we are a nation of priests, um, we are people uh, called in witness and mission. And despite all the things that we, f- f- all the ways in which we fail, God has already spoken of us that we are God's cherished people, that we will move in these ways. It's why one of my fart, part, favorite parts of our words of absolution is that Christ prays for us. It is in this way that we. Um, are ones who have been named and claimed by God, and so Christ prays for us. In the midst of Job's suffering, while Satan, and, and Bart takes it to be Satan, has been given in a large role into cause suffering for God, he is not able to kill the man. Which in some sense means throughout this trial, Job is thus protected by God. God is the one who is holding and sustaining him throughout all of it because there's a limited amount in which Satan can do to him. Um, he fears and loves God as the free God, as the one who can gives and takes away. In the second part, um, Job takes up, um, or uh, Bart takes up um, how Job can be in this way. But there's a, 
the quote on the back of the bulletin for days, sorry. Um, God does not hesitate for a moment to make himself the one whom Job will later appeal as his witness and recorder uh, in his surety, his advocacy, and representative to accept such total solidarity with him as to compromise himself. Job is valuable man like all, but God is infallible. Hence, in the matter at stake, and that which God himself guarantees, Job cannot and will not fail. In some sense, he's saying, because God is infallible, he's already guaranteed that Job will not fail in this trial. At the point of departure already, we cannot expect anything other than the act of Job's faithfulness to this God, grounded upon the rock of his confidence of God in Job. He will not curse Yahweh. He will not say anything concerning him which implies separation from him. He will always say what is right about him. Such a one is Job. Um, but in the second part, what happens is, is Job stays with this God through his suffering. And what Bart traces out is that as Job complains, he rarely complains about what he lost. More often, he complains about what has gone wrong in his relationship with God, going back to the wedding vows. He's not complaining about um, what the things that have been lost, but he's complaining about why their relationship has been disrupted as such. And Job never gets to see that it's part of the accuser or the Satan in heaven for this cause. The end of the book, this is not given as a solution to why he suffers. Job is one who stays in fidelity to this God, sticks with them, and yet this relationship is dynamic and not static. Going to his friends, which we talked about, is that they have a static relationship to this God. What Job has is this dynamic relationship that is um, Living, But what he decides and what he becomes clear about is that his problem, his suffering, has to do with God, um, not with anything else, not with the Satan, not with um, some other thing. This is a quote within that book. The remarkable thing about the book that is Job is that Job makes not a single step of flight to a better God, but stays resolutely on the field under battle, under fire of divine wrath. Although God treats him as an enemy, though the dark night and abyss, Job does not falter nor invoke another court or even appeal to the God of his friends, but calls upon this God who crushes him. He flees to the God whom accuses him. He sets his confidence in God who has disillusioned and reduced him to despair without deviating from the violent assertion of his innocent and God's hostility. He confesses his hope, taking as his defender the one who judges him as liberator, the one who throws him in prison as the friend, as his friend, his mortal enemy. Job binds himself to this one, but he protests it all the same. Now, one of the things I've talked to a couple people throughout this sermon series is that the Jews, after the Holocaust, come up with this protest theodicy. And what they say is that the proper role for, for Jews in the world is to protest evil. That's how to explain evil is by the protest of it, to say it shall be no more, but staying bound to God in that. What Job does is he continually protests, but stays in relationship to that one, and that is where faithfulness is found. In the third section, um, he takes that he has suffered because of God. Um, but what he finds and what, what Bart's about, which is, I think, terrifying, you might prefer Job's friends, is that God relates to Job in freedom. Um, uh, Job acknowledges that God has freedom to give and to take away, but God then is also free. I think most of us prefer a static God over the one who is free. 
Um, and what God does is he brings him to this nature who speaks to him. Um, he allows nature to be the speaker for him. And what that reveals to him um, uh, is this, this truth. The result is that within the created world, man is confronted by the innumerable great and small factors in the face of the autonomy of which we bow for good or evil, respecting the mystery of creation as thus being enabled to be as genuinely free man within it as, as, it as which the house it is as the house which God himself has built and assigned to him. What Job finds in the speeches of God, according to Bart, is that he is one who lives within the house in which God has designed, that these things have been spoken to him, and here he is shown to be free, and God is shown to be free with him. In part four, uh, he picks up Job's friends and talks about the ways in which they have have bound God in this way, and it's why they are rebuked and Job is not. Job and his continual um, defiance of God and saying that this is wrong, but staying in relationship is, is what um, vindicates him in his end, where his friends, while they speak correctly often, they speak with order and tradition in some ways. Uh, in Bart's phrase, they speak ahistorically. They don't speak within what matters. Their answers would work everywhere and every time. There is no free God in their answers. Their answers are the same ones you could give everywhere and in every place. And in that way, they fail as Job's friends, and they speak incorrectly about God. Which brings us to the end of today's sermon. I want to go back to the Luke passage that Brian read for us, is that within... Job finds within his sorrow, God is bound to him. The disciples on the road to Emmaus are people who have lost all that is. And it is God who comes alongside of them, Jesus Christ himself, who they do not recognize and instructs them. Instructs them in the ways in which this is what needed to happen. And then he takes the bread and he breaks it and they see him in the breaking of the bread. That his, his, his presence becomes this absence too as he disappears in that. In the midst of sorrow, it is God who walks with us. And Philip Carey in his, his discussion of Job, he talks about how Job speaks of this and the cross speaks of this is that the, the answer to the problem of suffering is that perhaps that we are found in a story that no matter how dark it seems at times, our hope is that when things are brought to bear, the story will make sense. The people on the road to Emmaus are bound in their sorrow. And yet when the storyteller comes, he explains to the prophets and Moses and the scriptures why the suffering must have happened so that the reconciliation and redemption can happen as well. We don't have the full story. The cross and resurrection is a hint to that grander story in which we are placed in by God, in which we find that suffering is, in Job's story is a type of witness to this, brings about redemption and fruit. But it is not for us to have the full story, but to trust, and that when the story is revealed. We will see goodness on that day. That in the fullness of time, that in hope, um, we'll be bound to God and freedom who meets with us, who takes us out of our, 
our dust and ashes and enlarges us to be in the house of God. Let us pray. God, you have gifted us with the book of Job. You've gifted us with the story of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the life in which he lived too. May we find ourselves capable in the midst of our suffering of praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that echo from Psalm 22 and words that echo from the cross of Christ himself. And yet in that we remain in fidelity to you. We are enabled to say, why are we suffering? And we go to the Lord with that. We don't make ahistorical answers. We don't bind tradition over this. But instead, we find ourselves in the hands of the living God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And while Jesus only quotes that portion from the cross, and while we are most familiar with that part of Psalm 22, Psalm 22 proclaims the fulfillment of that rescue. That you will bring about the rescue, that you will bring about the day of hope, that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families and nations will bow before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All of the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down dust to kneel will be before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his rightness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. He has done it. God, as we pray, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me at times? May we also pray the end of the psalm awaiting the future fulfillment of what you will do for us in the fullness of time. We ask all of this in your holy name. Amen.